I think what I'm doing is I'm following my instincts. Like I had a lot of people telling me you should quit your job and just do the book, but my instincts were not telling me that. And so it's a weird thing to have my instincts overruling my head, but that's actually worked well for me in, in most of my major decisions when I look back on my life. Like following my instincts, even if they don't always make sense to me, has seemed to lead, to lead to the right outcome. My name is Ruby Josephine Smith, and not only am I the host of this podcast, but I am a choreographer and contemporary dancer based in Tangier, Morocco. Being fascinated by unique perspectives, my goal is to bring you an in-depth look at each artist's individual creative process, learning more about what it is that drives a person to create. the last episode of 2019 and what a year it has been. I can't quite believe I only started this podcast this past spring and already it's grown more than I could imagine. I've learned so much already through this process and I can't wait to see where it takes me from here. So thank you so much to each one of you for listening and engaging with these conversations. I I truly couldn't do it without you. So I just wanted to take a moment to thank you before we start today. I've got some really big plans for 2020 and already some exciting and inspiring guests lined up. Uh, Just so you know, if you have been a regular listener, because I'm doing this podcast mostly on my own, keeping up with a weekly episode and this format of curating seasons has proven to be a little bit stressful. Uh, So instead, beginning immediately in January next year, I'm going to be releasing episodes every other Friday on a regular, ongoing basis, with the occasional forewarned break if I need to travel or need to work on a dance project or something like that. So that's my own little piece of news, Uh, but now let's get on to this week's amazing guest, an incredible artist to finish out the year. Today I am talking to Abigail Hingwen, author of the debut young adult novel Love Boat Taipei. I had the absolute pleasure of reading it, and it is truly such a joy of a novel. It not only brought me back to my own teenage years, but introduced me to a whole culture and context that was completely new for me. So there is this summer language immersion program in Taiwan called Qian Tan that welcomes teenagers from all over the world. However, it's most infamously known as Love Boat because it's kind of a free-for-all wild nightlife scene where adults often turn the blind eye. Abigail attended this program when she herself was a teen, and as she says in this conversation, the story of this program has been inside of her for a very long time. So the novel itself follows the protagonist, Ever Wong, through her adventure on this program, learning more about herself, her own passion for dance, and of course, learning about love. Love Boat Taipei is currently available for pre-order and will be released by HarperCollins on January 7th. So before we really begin, a little bit more about Abigail herself. She was born in West Virginia and raised in Ohio as a child of immigrant parents, both of Chinese descent. She graduated from Harvard University and Columbia Law School, worked in Washington, D.C. for the Senate, and as a law clerk for a federal judge. She also earned her Master of Fine Arts in Writing from Vermont College of Fine Arts. She now works in Silicon Valley in venture capital, artificial intelligence, and of course, writing novels along with everything else. 
In this conversation, Abigail and I connected on so many levels, as dancers, creatives, and music lovers. Besides, of course, talking about the process of writing this debut book, we also explored how she felt the calling to write her whole life, the ongoing balancing act of juggling her intensive jobs, writing career, and family life, why she had to write her book completely four different times, how her MFA program created a community around writing, and how we define creative freedom. I loved also that we talked about the difficulty of writing about dance itself. And I wanted to mention that after we had stopped recording, Abigail actually shared with me that in order to describe the dance scenes in her book, she would dance on her own just before writing. I just, I absolutely loved that. I think that's what I would have to do as well if I was going to write about dance. So I hope you have as much fun listening to this conversation as I did talking to Abigail. Without any further ado, here is my conversation with Abigail Hainwen. Well, I always start my interviews in the same place. I like to go back into your past and kind of your artistic upbringing and ask you specifically if you have a first memory of creating something. Yeah, so that's a great question. I have a younger brother and sister who are twins. They're three years younger than me. And when we were growing up, we would I would tell them what we called group stories. So we would be lying you know, in my room together. My sister and I shared a bed and I had a couch for my brother. Um, and I would, we would start off naming all the people in the group. And that was usually the three of us, plus our cousins, plus a bunch of kids that were in our community, family, friends. And then, then I would kind of weave together a story of us going on adventures in the forest with no adult supervision and mm-hmm. um, you know, making, making a living somehow um, with the living off the land or um, getting into adventures and running into bad guys. And it was, it was a good time. Um, we that. also did a lot of arts and crafts as a family. Mm-hmm. So um, playing with popsicle sticks or those cool popsicle sticks that had notches in them so you can actually build up cabins. And I remember building a lot of houses out of Lincoln Logs and other types of toys like that. Mm-hmm. And then the three of us often played together, um, just make believe with our, our toys. So we had My Little Ponies and Matchbox cars and <laughs> they would all be in a world <laughs> together. And we would just uh, make up story after story um, based on these characters and these dolls and stuff. Amazing. Amazing. Were you already writing down these stories? No, I never wrote them down. I, I wrote no. stories for school mm-hmm. and um, you know, I started journaling in fourth grade. So that's, I think, when I started writing seriously, like just for myself. And I, I kept, I've kept that okay. practice ever since. I still journal today. Um, yeah. I think that's really where I've gotten a lot of my emotional out release for, for the writing. Um, mm, with my journal, yeah. I just usually like Back then, I, when I look back at my old journals, it's all written in code because I didn't want anyone to read it. Um, like, like, really? Like, it's amazing. Code, but also, like, literal code. I made up a code with some of my friends in fifth grade. And so I, I actually have journal entries. Oh, my God. This, like, made up language. Do you still understand it? I, I can mostly read it. I've forgotten a lot of it. Okay. It's, yeah, it'll come. I think if I studied it, I could probably break the code again. That's um, an incredible thing to have, though. Yeah, it's funny. It's kind of this map to your former self. Right, right. It's really, it's a weird thing. But like now with my mm-hmm. private journals, I just, I just dive in. I don't have to give context. I just dive into how I'm feeling. And um, that's like a really good outlook for me. Yeah. I think it's so important to have that personal practice as well as a professional practice of writing. It's mm-hmm. nice to have those parallels. Yeah. I'm curious more about your upbringing because I know um, I read that your mother is from the Philippines and then your father's from Indonesia. Um, and they're that's both, right. uh, but they're both originally from China. Is that correct? Mm-hmm. That's right. So my on my my dad's side, um, his grandpa and he his grandfather was from Shandong province in the north, um, mm-hmm. and his father ended up leaving China um, when he was eighteen. There there's a war going on at the time, so he went 
to Hong Kong and then Indonesia, and then he was kept out of the country for 10 years. He couldn't get back to his wow. wife and his, his uh, daughter at the time, his young daughter. So eventually, my grandmother and my aunt fled China as well, and they were able to reunite with him in Indonesia. That's um, when my, my dad and his other siblings were born. So he came to the United wow. States when he was 13, similarly to his father, kind of being sent out as the oldest son to try to make a better life for the family. Mm-hmm. And then my mom, um, her family had been, I think, back and forth between China and the Philippines. She was uh, raised in Manila and then came to the United States for mm-hmm. grad school after her parents passed away. Okay. Do either of them have any creative tendencies? I didn't really think so as much when I was growing up, although my mom actually did do a lot of the arts and crafts with mm-hmm. us. So, you know, I remember doing coloring books with her and she would take um, the shells of pistachio nuts and we would make like butterflies and flowers out of them, like gluing them onto the surfaces. So I, you know, I guess like, yeah. So my mom, I think is probably the impetus behind some of those arts and crafts type things we did growing up and she would sew dolls and um, other things like that. Yeah. My dad is, you know, he's a chemical engineer and on the business side of things. Uh, I'm sure, you know, in his work as a business person, I'm sure he's like employing a lot of creativity, but as a kid, you don't really experience that as much. Do you feel that your different backgrounds kind of impacted your creative upbringing? Oh, it's a great question. I had never thought about it, actually, to try to figure Mm -hmm. out like, how is it that that impacts being a creative person now? I mean, for sure, I didn't think I was Mm -hmm. going to be a creative person. I thought I was more on a straight, narrow path. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, I was going, I went to, I became a lawyer after college. Right, yeah. And it wasn't until I read this book, Getting Unstuck by Butler. He was a fellow at Harvard Business School. And there was this 100 mm-hmm. jobs inventory in it that I took. And it, it was like this, I, I can't even remember the, the survey, but I've seen it since like out separate from the book. Um, and mm-hmm. it pointed me in a creative direction. I was like, oh, I didn't actually know I had this creative side to me. And so I think that's actually what freed me to pursue this creative side. Because I think before creative pursuits were hobbies they were not at least in my family in my community they were considered hobbies and not something that you did as a living and so I didn't actually have permission I think from myself um, to pursue these seriously okay yeah I was going to ask about that I'm curious because that's also a a parallel in your book which we can go ahead and dive into because I think that ties in well to it Um, so your debut novel is coming up Um, it's called Love Boat Taipei Um, And as I said, I told you earlier, I just finished reading it this morning and I absolutely loved it, especially I I think I read something that said it's a mixture of Crazy Rich Asians, Sarah Dessen with a little bit of Jane Austen romance. And La La Land, Um, you're dancing. The La La Land part Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Yes, exactly. Um, Which is perfect because I absolutely loved Sarah Dessen novels when I was younger, Um, huge Jane Austen fan. So reading that, I was like, I think I'm going to like this. And it really brought me back to my teenage self um, and something I would have loved as a teenager and still love now. And I'm, would you, before we get into kind of the autobiographical perhaps aspects of the book, which I wanted to ask about, would you mind giving just a very brief synopsis of the novel? Sure. Yeah. So it's a story. um, So the love boat is actually a cultural phenomenon in the Asian American community. It's not so well known outside the community, but I think with the book coming out and um, there's also a documentary by Valerie. So um, that, that came out this year. I think more and more people are starting to find out about this program. Yeah, I'd never heard um, of it. But the Taiwanese government, yeah, they, the Taiwanese government had set it up in the 1960s and invited a lot of Chinese American youth, um, but not just Chinese American, but Chinese Canadian and Chinese Europeans mm-hmm. to attend this program. And I think their hope was really to um, help to build empathy for Taiwan. At the time, there's mm-hmm. you know, some 
the politics involved, but um, really it was also an opportunity for these youth overseas to learn about their heritage, language, and culture. Mm-hmm. Um, but a lot of parents would also send their kids to find a spouse. And <laughs> sure. I went on this trip. I was a presidential scholar in high school, so the Taiwanese government actually went through the list of all the major scholarships, the Press Scholars, the Koch Scholars, the Westinghouse Scholars, and everyone with a Chinese last name got this trip for free. So mm-hmm. um, so I went along with a bunch of other presidential scholars and thinking I was going for language and culture, and then lo and behold, it's this like, amazing party all summer in Taiwan and um (laughs) so I think the story's just been in me a long time and I've you know I wanted to I was like it just felt like I you know I've been writing for 12 years um trying my hand at different novels and then this one I think just I felt ready to write it that's incredible so the story follows Ever Wong um who is a young woman who's about to go to college but she can't decide between medical school or being a dancer and so I'm just curious with the whole story how how autobiographical is it for you were you a dancer as well um did you have that same kind of choice uh, at that point in your life or how did yeah, that come so to you I did dance for years I did ballet for 12 years mm-hmm. I was on the dance squad of my high school which was you know we did flat core and played palms and we would dance with the band um, during football games and other activities. Yeah. Um, and then I was in the show choir, which was, you know, singing and dancing. And so dance was really a huge part of my life growing up. And again, it was something that I never thought I would be able to do seriously. It was, but I loved it. I, I probably spent, when I look back on it, I probably spent like 10 hours a week on dance, um, just through all my activities. And, wow. you know, when you think about it, it's actually a lot of time as, you know, like 10 hours a week for like 12 years of your yeah. life. And then I also did. It makes an impact. Yeah. I also did piano and violin. So I had like, and, and I was in the choir, right? So there's mm-hmm. a lot of music and dance in my life. And I think it really wasn't until I wrote this book that I understood how much I love dance. Um, because even today, yeah. like I actually got to know my husband swing dancing and um, okay, I love he, that. he's actually not a dancer. He played football in high school and, and he played sprint football at Princeton, but, um, you know, yeah. but he's athletic. So we, he got together a group swing dancing and we would do that together. I'm like, no wonder I fell in love with him because I was dancing with him. Right? Oh, I love that. Yeah. yeah. So even today I still dance a lot in my own home You know, I just turn the music mm-hmm. on and I, I dance. And I, it was like, especially when I was writing this book, I was dancing and, and that's actually, that informed a lot of the parts where Ever's like thinking about it. And there's a passage mm-hmm. in particular that I come back to or like, this is really what the essence of dance is for me. And I, I'm happy to read it. Um, I would love that. Yeah, because I was really struck by how well you describe dance. I think it's a really difficult thing to write about. I, I have trouble writing about it as a dancer. Um, so And I loved reading it. So yeah, I'd love to hear that, actually. Yeah, so there's this part like towards, I would say, like maybe the two, two-thirds mark of the book where she's been she's gone through some hard times and then she's trying to figure out things. And so she turns on the music. And so... Mm. She thinks, you know, almost against my will, the music takes hold of my shoulders, then my hips, then my feet. Slowly, my stocking arms draw curves through the air. So she's put on a pair of socks on her on her hands, mm-hmm. picking up speed as the music mm-hmm. deepens. My fingers pulse against the stretchy knit. Wrists flex in parallel movements to the rhythm. I begin to dance. One song, another, another, my feet beating out the rhythm on the floor. I whirl into the space between the dressers. My long-armed shadow stag leaps over the walls until deep in my body. I understand what I will never have words for. And that, for me, is really the essence of what dance is. Like, it's this way of expressing and understanding things that mm. even though I've written so many words in my life, there are things yeah. that really do transcend words. Absolutely. And it's beautiful how you describe that because you really describe it as an internal experience, not just how she looks, 
but how she's feeling mm-hmm. and how she's feeling the pulse of the music and everything. And I think that's that's exactly what dance is because you're not always watching yourself. You're feeling yourself in movement. And right. you described that really yeah, beautifully. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, and I love how you tie that into your writing as well. You're bringing back this old artistic pursuit that you had. Even if it was just a hobby at the time, you never know how it's going to come back into your work. So I think that's also a really beautiful thing. Right, right. I mean, for you, like, what does dance mean to you? Oh, boy, that's a big question. <laughs> well, as a, I'm, a, I'm a choreographer mostly. Um, so for me, it's really, it is also an expression, but it's also a way of telling my story. I've always described it kind of as painting through bodies. Mm-hmm. So it's creating a story um, on a stage or in a video or whatever kind of platform through different bodies moving through space and all of the possibilities of our bodies and what they can express from an internal emotional perspective and then also how others can connect to that through seeing something so relatable like a body and movement yeah um i love that yeah Yeah, as you know ever ever wong is also a choreographer (laughs) i know i loved that yeah it's great because i feel like so often we just see these kind of so you think you can dance dancers um but to get a choreographer's perspective it's definitely different and it's not something you hear as often so that was great as well so it was, it's kind of a coming-of-age story, this whole story of Ever and her journey through Taiwan and through this program. But it also strikes me as a story about finding your artistic calling, which is something that I come back to. I've, I've had a lot of conversations about that with different guests on this podcast. And I'm curious if you ha- ever had a sense of writing being a calling to you um, or what your idea of having some kind of calling in life is in general. Oh, I love that question. And I realized I didn't fully answer your question about whether how much this is autobiographical. Um, oh, so that's okay. Ever's choice of med school versus dancing, um, in some, it, I think mm-hmm. it is very autobiographical in some ways because I, hmm. you know, I, I went on this the normal path of law and corporate law, and I was working in big tech companies, and but I still had this yeah. side of me that's writing. And mm-hmm. I really do think of it as a calling. Because, and I remember people telling me, like, you only write if, because you have to. Like, it's such a painful, torturous yeah. thing to do. Like, <laughs> if, unless, you know, if you do it for yourself, that's great. But if you're trying to publish or be in that, that world, like, it's heartbreaking, right? Because it's very, very difficult to yeah. break through. It took me 12 years before my work wow. broke through. Yeah. Um, and, and I, but I did feel called to it. Like, I felt like I... I had these mm-hmm. stories inside me that I just had to get out and write about. I had these characters inside me and that's what mm-hmm. keeps me going. Um, I do it because I love it and it feeds me. Um, yeah. And I don't know where it's all going. Um, and it, the funny thing about ever is yeah. she had, she makes a choice. And for me in some ways I haven't made a choice yet because I'm still working in artificial intelligence really? and tech in Silicon Valley. And I've got this <laughs> novel coming out and I'm yeah. trying to figure out how it all fits together. And I hope it does somehow, yeah. um, but I don't know what that's going to look like. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, you do so many things. It's absolutely incredible. I mean, you went from being a lawyer to then now venture capital and artificial intelligence. Plus, you have a family. Plus, you've written this novel. I mean, it's so many things. And I was actually I was reading your website and I saw in the Q&A section you addressed that question a little bit. Um, I just wanted to read what you said there because you wrote, um, my head is full of imaginary characters and my work full of real ones. At different times, the writing kept me creatively engaged while the work kept me stable. When work got crazy, writing was my home. Oh, and yeah. so I just, I was wondering if you could maybe elaborate on that a little bit. 
and the idea of trying to keep it all balanced. And I'm curious, do you compartmentalize these sections of your life or do you find that they intertwine? Yes, I am I'm still struggling with the balance. Um, I, I did like I was doing three jobs at work over the past year and a half. And so with the book deal, like it just became more and more unsustainable to do all of that. So I did let go of two of my jobs in May. And so now I've consolidated into just one job. And my manager has been amazing. Like just a really, he understands like you're launching your first book is like, it's a once in a lifetime experience. And so, you know, he's given me a lot of flexibility and I'm going to yeah. be on tour all of January and he's totally cool with that. And, you know, I've got projects I'm moving forward at work. That's great. And I, I find like what I'm like, it, this really is real time. Like every day I'm still trying to figure out like what is the right balance. But I yeah. think what I'm doing is I'm following my instincts. Like I had a lot of people telling me you should quit your job and just do the book. And, and it made sense to me in my head that that's what I should do, but my instincts were not telling me that. And so it's a weird thing to have my instincts overruling my head, but that's actually worked well for me in, in most of my major decisions when I look back on my life, like following my instincts, even if they don't always make sense to me has seemed to lead to lead to the right outcome. So, so yeah, I think Right now, what I do, what I'm doing is I, I keep the things that are feeding me and that are making me a stronger, better, more mm-hmm. creative, better human being, right? So things that feed me, I keep, and then things that are not feeding me, I, I, yeah. I let those go. Yeah. I, I think, I mean, that's a really smart way to do it, um, but I think it can be really tricky sometimes also to really know how to follow that intuition. Um, and I think it's a process also to be able to grow that in yourself and to know which voices to listen to. So how, how do you think you've gotten to a point where you're able to really differentiate the voices and know what to listen to? Right. Yeah. So I remember in college, I, I would process a lot and I still do. Mm. Like I yeah. kind of agonize over these decisions and just think through all these different scenarios. And what I found is that the decision I came to was always the same as my initial gut reaction. And that was really mm, valuable information yeah. about myself and my decision-making process. And I remember telling this to a friend and he said, huh, I've got to think about that because you process more than anybody I know. <laughs> it's yeah. really, it's <laughs> kind of funny to hear that about myself. But yeah, so that's cool. I think it was that, it was really that. Like, it's just like kind of years of decision-making and realizing that I end up in the same place as where I originally start. So that gave me yeah. more confidence to trust that intuition. I think that's really valuable for anyone to learn that in themselves. Yeah. Whether you're an artist or not, really. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, it's true. Even in Silicon Valley, like a lot of the successful entrepreneurs, they will make decisions based on intuition and gut. And I think it really yeah. pays off. I'd like to go back a little bit to the process of writing your book. So what was kind of the first spark of it? When did you get the idea to to write this novel? So I think the experience has been in me a long time, um, but I was at a friend's house who had also gone to Lobo and there was actually a bunch of writers there and we were just chatting and I was, t- we were, somehow this, the story of Lobo came up and someone's like, someone really should write this story. And so I, I was like, <laughs> I'll do it. <laughs> so I did. That'll be me. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So that, Perfect. but I think the, the characters themselves, that was the, that was the hard part. Um, Cause you know, I'd gone on the mm. program and there were a thousand kids going 
and it was the peak years of the program. And there have literally been thousands of Asian American kids who have had this experience, not just on, in Taiwan, but there's wow. an equivalent program in Korea. And so I was mm -hmm. like, which kid is supposed to go on this journey? Who's going to be my main character out of all these thousands of kids mm. that could, could put, you know, and obviously it's going to be a fictionalized character, but, um, and so that, that sure. part was the hardest. And it, I ended up writing the whole book from four different points of view. Wow. And I'm sure you can guess who those four characters are. Right. But originally, it was like alternating viewpoints between Ever, Rick, Xavier, and Sophie. Oh, my God. And, <laughs> and so I ended up writing the book four times, basically, from wow. each of their points That's of view. That's an intense process. <laughs> it was super intense. And I couldn't make them work together on in one manuscript because it was mm. only 120,000 words, and yeah. which is already way too long for a young adult novel. And Right. Um, and it came out really shallow because I, like, I, I just really could not fit all their journeys in. Sure. So I ended up scrapping that entire book. I think it was like draft 23, 24, 25, something crazy. <laughs> and I rewrote the entire book from scratch from just one point of view, and that was Evers. Oh and I gosh. think the reason I ended up choosing her is I felt like she was really the quintessential character who needed a trip like this. And that was kind mm -hmm. of how I thought about it. Who needs to go on a trip like this where you understand your parents' culture more and you understand your own identity. It's, it's really a trip about discovering your identity in all its facets, not yeah. just ethnicity, but like, as you pointed out, like your artistic sensibilities and um, your culture and your relationship to your parents and to your community and to your friends. Yeah. And I felt like she really needed that the most because she was so torn between her worlds and her mm -hmm. and what she was passionate about and what seemed to be the right thing to do. But then I, you know, and so the benefit of having written the book four times with four points of view is <laughs> people tell me that they, they, they really find the characters well-rounded. And I'm like, that's because I wrote yeah. the book four times. You wrote them all. I know. I was just all. thinking that, actually. I mean, they're all really fleshed out characters. And that makes so much sense to me that you really had to get inside of each one of them. Yeah, yeah. So the it, it's it's paid off, but it was a lot of work <laughs> along the way. Yeah, but, you know, I absolutely. Find I find that's true for yeah. all of art. This The bar is so high totally. for art, uh, which I, mm. I, it was, that was actually interesting. I think you'd appreciate this as a dancer. Like, mm. you know, I think sometimes there's misconceptions about art being softer somehow. And like, but I've been in both worlds, like the corporate yeah. world versus the artistic world. And like the bar for excellence in the art world is so incredibly high compared to anything that it you really use in the is. corporate world. In the corporate world, you can send things out like 80%. Um, but for art, mm. like, you can't play a song with mistakes in it. You can't put a painting up on the wall that's got scratches on it, right? right. You can't dance a routine that's yeah. people see flat. Yeah, you, and like the bar is that it needs to grab yeah. and hold people's attention and it has to speak to them and move mm -hmm. them and change them, right? And so, and like, you don't require this at like mm. a legal article. <laughs> so, yeah. <Sure. laughs> um, that's such an interesting perspective. Did you have this in mind as you were writing it? Did you feel that kind of pressure? Uh, no, I think it's something I just came to over time as I was writing my novels. I'm like, wow, mm. the bar for each of these works is so high. Um, but I think there's a part of me that also loves that. Whenever I would look at figure skaters, that was something you know you probably mm -hmm. watched as well. Like as a ballerina, I, I've yeah, watched yeah. all of the Olympic figure skating and there's this part yeah. of me that just longed for that type of mastery. And not everyone has that, I think. I think it's a personality thing. Um, but I, I feel like there's that that was a desire in me to like really take something and master it. And I feel like that's what I'm doing with my, my artistic work. I love that. What was the writing process like emotionally for you? Did you hit different kind of levels or peaks in the process? And that could be in general, too, maybe not just for this novel, but it sounds like you've been, you've been writing so long. Um, have you found any kind of patterns that come out in it? 
Yeah, I don't, that's a really good question. I don't know. I mean, there's, I think there's the emotions of your characters as they go through certain experiences that you experience mm -hmm. with them. I don't mm -hmm. write in order. Okay. Like, I, I've never been able to write in order, like chronological order from start to finish. I I feel like I that actually, would be hard. I've never heard yeah. of anyone who does. <laughs> really? I, I feel like there are people who can. Like, their brains are just yeah. linear enough to do that. But for me, I, I jump all over the place and I write. When I'm, when I'm developing a piece, like, I write what's grabbing me at that particular time. And, mm. and I try to write based on the emotional arc and like sometimes so sometimes if I'm in a good a certain place emotionally I know it's connecting to a certain emotional place in my novel and then I'll write that scene or I'll write I'll, mm. even even if it's not a full-blown scene I'll just write out like some bullets or or some just even a list of words which is something I learned through my MFA program um, yeah. and that captures that moment for that character so in some ways that was like an outlet too for me and like expressing okay this is how I'm feeling mm -hmm. um and then, of course, there's the emotions of the business of writing, which is its own thing, right. and, you know, the, the ups and downs of that. And for that, right. I think I'm just really grateful to have had so much support from my writing partners. Um, I, like yeah. I said, I, I wrote for 12 years and I wasn't breaking in and I had like rejection after rejection after rejection. And they kept reading my <laughs> stuff. I'm like, why are you still reading my stuff? Right? They kept believing me and me. And I was like, do you really think my writing's any good? And yeah. and they just they just stuck by me all those years. That's um, amazing. And I'm so grateful. I'm just so grateful to have them. That's incredible. I think it's it so important to have that. that. Yeah, it's so important to have that community. Yeah, how did you find that program and what, what drew you to the MFA program that you did? So some of the writing partners I met through the Society for Children's Books, Writings and Illustrators, SCBWI, mm -hmm. um, they had gone on the program and spoke really highly of it. Okay, yeah. And what do you, what do you feel like you got out of that? I remember my first teacher um, was she was like a character genius and um, it's am jenkins and mm -hmm. she's brilliant yeah and i remember talking to her and saying i don't want to learn just to polish my work and make it pretty on the surface because mm -hmm. i knew how to do that already I'd, I'd learned that in law school and when i was an editor on the law review mm -hmm. i want to know how to make it like i want to get to the core of my work and that's what she taught me how to do she taught me how to get yeah. to the heart of every scene and every character she would ask questions like what would it take to break your character would you is this a character you would die for? <laughs> like she had really, wow. again, going back to high standards, like really high wow. bar for what yeah. you needed to bring your characters. Um, and I remember she showed us a picture of two sisters, two different paintings by the same artist. Mm -hmm. And they were really different. Like one looked, they were both gorgeous, both exquisite detail, but one of them was like a little porcelain doll. And the other one was wild. And like she was, her gaze was like, bold and she looked at, she looked you in the eye um and she mm. told us the difference between these two paintings was that the artist was in love with the second one and not the first one and it, apparently mm. there were scandals involved and um he was forced to leave the house at some wow. point <laughs> but but that was the point that she made like you have to love it, it's all it's about your heart and your love for it mm. and the work yeah your love for the work and the character so that was like yeah, I think that was the most important lesson I took away, yeah. and I, I still have that with yeah, me. Yeah, that's beautiful. And did you know that you wanted to write young adult fiction specifically, or did that come more from the theme that you were writing about? It definitely fits with the Love Boat theme, but I've, I've been writing young adult fiction almost my entire writing career. Mm. Young adult today, and I, I said this on the um, They Call Us Bruce podcast mm -hmm. that I did last month, um, but young adult today is really different than what it was when 
when I was growing up, like I think a wrinkle in time was young adult when I was growing up, but it would be mm. considered middle grade today. Yeah. Um, it's kind of a big genre from 13 to like 55 or probably older. I know. I know anyone can uh, really read it these days. Yeah, it's not yeah, specifically for that age. That, right, right. They, people love that first, first everything, right? First yeah. date, first kiss, first taste of, you know, alcohol. And so <laughs> sure. Love Boat definitely fits into that. Yeah. Um, a lot of first experiences. Um, but for, you know, I think what was challenging for me for many years as I was writing in this space was trying to figure out the voice, mm-hmm. uh, but I eventually got there and, yeah. uh, yeah, no, I, I love the space. Do you tap back much into your own young adult life for the voice of it? I think I do. Um, it took me a while to find the right voice for the right characters. I mean, that's, some, that's actually something you do in all art forms. I think mm-hmm. even in dance, right. you could think of developing each person in a piece is like developing a character and its voice in itself. Right. That's so true. Yeah. I wanted there. So I saw on your website that you have a little section on books about the craft. Um, so I'm guessing you're a very avid reader like myself. Right. Um, and it reminded me of this one book uh, that I have. Have you heard of? It's called, I have it in front of me, uh, Women at Work. And it's the Paris Review. It's a whole collection of interviews that they've done with different authors and illustrators. Right. I think I read some of the pieces. Yeah. There was one in particular with Margaret Atwood, um, and I just had this quote written down, and it's something I just felt like discussing with you. Um, So in one of the interviews, she said, we have fallen very much into the habit of judging books by their covers. Authenticity has become a concern. I tend to side with creative freedom. Everyone should write as she or he feels impelled. So... First of all, I'm curious, did you worry about how the book was going to be received at any point during writing it? Yeah, so it's a great question. I think it's one of those things I'd worked out over the course of my, those 12 years (laughs) of writing. Um, And probably one of the things I would say I took away from my MFA program as well, like just really, it really freed me to have my own voice Mm. and to trust that and and that your voice will resonate with some people and it won't resonate with others. But if you fake it, it definitely won't resonate with anyone. Right. So, so yeah, I completely agree that authenticity is really what matters. And I mean, if life is short, if you're not real, then, you know, what's the point? What's (laughs) the point? Exactly. And what does, with that quote as well, what does creative freedom mean to you? Oh, yeah, that's a great question. I feel like that's something I'm going to have to be exploring the rest of my artistic life. Yeah, I don't know. I, I actually, I would love to hear if you have thoughts on that. Hmm. I think it's something that comes from within because I think if you start looking to other people to allow you to be free creatively, you're always going to find someone restricting you. Mm. Um, so I think it really relates to that process of inner permission to create and trusting yourself with creations. I mean, I'm still pretty early in the process as well, <laughs> considering I'm young. But um, yeah, that's how I see it so far. And it's still something I'm working on. I love that. Yeah, I, it makes me think again mm-hmm. of my first teacher, Amanda Jenkins. Um, mm-hmm. She, one of the things she freed me of was scenes and structure. And she said, you know, instead of writing the whole scene out, just write bursts of feelings, glimpses, mm. like that first flash, like what is what does he see the first time he sees her, right? Or mm-hmm. what is she feeling in that moment when she opens the door to this gift that he's given her, right? And yeah. and that was really a cool way of letting me just get to the heart of like who these characters were and, and finding that authentic place. Yeah. Um, 
so maybe that's when you know I, I love this question I feel like I want to think about it now for like sure a, yeah a while um but yeah maybe that's part of that creative freedom is just letting yeah. go of all those structures and just putting on the page at least for me as, as a writer putting on the page what is uniquely you and only comes from you yeah it's it's just the expression of whatever you feel like needs to yeah. be expressed in that moment and then forming right. it into something oh, this is so fun yeah. It's really so fun to talk well, about. I, it's so I fun love, to talk about through sorry. just different disciplines, you know. Yeah, exactly. And I love talking to you at this stage as well because it's so interesting that this is your first novel and it it, sound, it seems like such an experienced novel. And I mean, you have been writing for quite a long time, but you're also just beginning on this journey. So I think it's a really interesting point to have these discussions yeah. and really get into that. Yeah, I think the other lesson, um, you know, along the way, like my... Those previous novels that I wrote, like I definitely had people saying, well, why don't you self-publish or why don't you go with a smaller publisher? Mm -hmm. Like there's a lot of great independent publishers and presses. And, and I, you know, I thought about it. I had, you know, the, the blessing and curse of um, big agents Mm -hmm. that wanted big deals. And I know, I think in retrospect, I'm glad that I waited uh, for this one to come out strong. Yeah. So that's been, that's been great. And I'm hoping that I'll sort of pull out these drawer novels and, and, you know, do something with them. Yeah. There's pieces of them that I think are still working and, and I would love to figure out how to, how to package them properly. Mm. I like that idea of drawer novels. I think that's also something <laughs> that can be applied across disciplines is just the things you keep in the drawer for later. You never know when you might need them. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So are you working on anything at the moment or is everything focused on this novel for the moment? I am, yeah. So I have um, a companion novel that I'm working on. It's based on mm. two of the viewpoint characters that are in the first book. Oh, and uh, yeah, so that's that's actually my big nut. But I'm doing a lot of other writing right now just around really? Love Boat. So pieces for, for journals and magazines um, that are kind of coming from inbound requests. Mm, Those okay. are good Nice. And is it hard to juggle kind of the publicity of this current novel and then also keeping your creative writing practice. I mean, how is that? How I can, I don't, I separate those so much. Like as a dancer, it's, you know, there's the creation process and then the performance process. And so I'm curious how you kind of juggle both of those worlds. Yes, I'm, I'm glad you said yeah. that because I'm doing it very badly right now. I don't, oh, no. know, how to, I don't know how to balance it up. So actually the great thing is um, today, I'm, I'm after, after we talk, I'm actually gonna mm-hmm. just spend a couple hours immersed in book two. And I'm really mm, looking forward to it because I have not been able to carve out that time. There's just been so much mm-hmm. exciting noise around the book and just right. so many opportunities to speak and, and go to events and um, connect with people. But I do mm-hmm. need to, I realize I need to rebalance everything and just kind of try to protect that writing time again and how important it is to come back to that. Yeah. Yeah. It sounds like you have to be quite disciplined with yourself about it. Yeah, I think so. I think so. I'm curious, this is something I actually ask everyone, but it weaves perfectly into this conversation. Um, Do you have any daily rituals? And this doesn't have to be morning rituals or night rituals, but just anything you do almost every day that helps enhance your creative process. Yeah, so for sure, the cup of tea. Mm, (laughs) For a long time, my writing routine was like 9 to 12 at night after work and the kids were in bed. And um, and my husband actually started me on this routine because I used to Mm. complain like, he would stay up working late and like and he's like well why don't you stay up working with me and so yeah. it happened like nine o'clock we put the kettle on and I would get a second wind um, mm-hmm. but even now like the first thing I do before I write is I pour myself a cup of tea and I think <laughs> it just gets me in into the mindset 
Yeah. Uh, but I, I tend to need like a good chunk of unbroken time to really immerse myself, and I need to, I need to turn off like the devices and mm. turn off my email, and you know, and, and yeah. tell people I'm not going to be reachable like for this time. So um, yeah, to give me that space, really work in silence. And do you work mostly from home when you're working on writing? Um, at home, I will sometimes go to coffee shops to have a little bit of ambient noise, and then I have some friends that sometimes I'll, I'll go and write with them. I have yeah. some other co-working friends that I do similar stuff like that with, and it's so helpful to have that kind of buddy system, I think, for creative right. work. It's like it's good accountability because you don't you promise yourselves yeah. breaks, but that means you have to be productive in between the breaks. And, yeah, uh, exactly. yeah, and even with my my child, like you know, we're starting to do some of that together too. Like, okay, we're going to work for the next hour and a half, and then we're going to take a break together. Yeah. And yeah. <laughs> good motivation. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Do you have, I forget, do you have one or two sons? I have two sons. Mm-hmm. Two yeah. sons. How old are they? Uh, 12 and 17. So my 12-year-old is a composer. He is at the San Francisco, San Francisco Conservatory of Music, which has been really fun to um, just see his music coming alive. You say you're 12 year old. Yes. Yeah. He's been there. Since That's he's incredible. He's a composer. I, it's so fun. I'm like, wow. I'm like, where does this kid come from? It's, it's so much fun to hear his music. Um, and oh, know, that's incredible. Yeah. He's, he's actually really encouraged me. Like he just has this music inside him. He's been, I've been writing it down mm-hmm. for him since he was four. Um, wow. You know, we used to notate it painstakingly with our hand with, you know, just drawing on um, graph on staff paper. And then over time, yeah. he learned how to use Sibelius, which is a, a really cool um, composer software. So now he composes almost exclusively on that. Um, he'll like oh figure gosh. it out on the piano and then he'll import it into Sibelius. And now he's like way beyond me. I can't, I don't touch his stuff. I can't help wow. him at all now. I just listen and enjoy. And That's I, incredible. Yeah. Can you find his work anywhere? Does he publish it yet? Uh, no, it's not. I'm happy to, to send you a clip if you'd like. <laughs> yeah, I'm so curious. That's. I mean, he's a little prodigy, it sounds oh, like. We that's have, amazing. We have so much fun with him. Um, and then my older one is, he's actually writing a novel. Um, so that's been really fun to wow. you know, get into his head and hear like what's going on in there through his writing. And then the, both of them are, mm-hmm. are artificial intelligence programmers. So, you know, similarly, mm-hmm. I think creative and technical and trying to figure out how how they're going to balance all wow. this. Yeah. Yeah. It sounds like you're passing on a lot. That's, that's incredible. <laughs> One other thing that I like to ask everyone about is just if you, I mean, you already have so many interests that you're balancing, but do you have any other maybe hobbies or interests that may surprise people or just some fun things that are a little bit disconnected for, from your work? Well, I, I mentioned I went running this morning, uh, which I do almost every other yeah. day, at least probably more than that. Um, it really helps to ground me to just to move. And then obviously the dancing inside my own house when no one's looking. Yeah. <laughs> um, I have two dogs. You may have heard them barking in the background. My older, my younger son actually bought great. them. Um, Sweet. Yeah. So we go for a walk as a family together every night with the dogs. And we, we live really close mm. to a mall. So we'll just walk yeah. down to the mall, get a drink, come back home. Lovely. So, yeah. It's a really nice routine. That's nice. Um, I saw also you're obsessed with musicals. Mm, totally. I happen to read that. That's <laughs> I am too. I've always, I was such a musical theater kid when I was in high school. Oh, so um, I was very happy to read that. Which were your favorites? Um, you know, I haven't been keeping up with a lot of the new ones. Um, I love the classics, mm-hmm. like My Fair Lady, Singing in the Rain. I still love going back to those. Um, I mean, I was obsessed with Wicked in high oh, yeah. school. I think everyone right. was. That was in my high school. <laughs> Um, but there's so many good ones. Yeah, my favorites are um, Les Mis, Miss Saigon, Hamilton. We're completely obsessed with right now, and then The Greatest Showman. Oh, amazing! I haven't seen that yet, but I need to. It's on my list. 
Yeah. Oh, and Phantom of the Opera. How could I forget? Oh, <laughs> Phantom of, of the Opera was, my, was the first musical I saw. It's, it's a great story. I mean, it's about a composer. So yeah, my, my exactly. everyone really loved it, especially. Exactly. So do you see yourself with all of these interests and themes in your life, do you see yourself continuing to write about artists and write about music and dance and all of these creative components? Yes, I think that it's just a part of who I am. Like my next book is following one of the artistic characters in the first book. So, you know, that's going to continue. And I, mean, I think, I think, you know, especially like since I work in artificial intelligence where, um, you know, machines are able to do more and more things that only humans have done mm. in the past, you know, it makes me ask the question like, well, what is uniquely mm. human? And there is AI art sure. now, but I, I still really see it as a tool to help um, for artists to lean on. But I really do think that what makes art art is fundamentally mm. human. And it's about the soul that you pour into it. Um, maybe it's the consumer of the art, like the reader or the, the viewer who completes the experience through the lens of their own mm. experience. Um, and so I think that as we have more and more AI in the world, I, I feel like I want us as humans to think about like, well, make sure let's make sure we bring all of ourselves and what makes us human to the table. That's fascinating. So. I would have never thought about that perspective before. <laughs> <laughs> it's a very weird one coming out of No, but it's my, incredible my because it's true. I mean, we have so much that technology can do for us now. And even AI aside, our phones can do so much for us now. And, you know, everyone who takes photos on Instagram could be a photographer. But what is it that right. that makes it art and how yeah I I I agree with you that it is that soulfulness you have to have that human soulfulness that makes it real art whatever that truly means right yeah right yeah that's really fascinating well I think that's a lovely note to end on actually is there anything else you would like to talk about in terms of your book or your current process or anything we didn't mention yet yeah, I, I think we covered a lot of it. I mean, I I'm really enjoyed this conversation. Like, it's thank it's so special you. for me to get to speak to a dancer about it. Oh, thank you. Um, yeah, I mean, because most conversations I have around it are you know about kind of like the uh, the cultural experience or the identity, and yeah, to be able to speak with someone else who's also a dancer and choreographer, like yeah. I think that's incredible. I mean, actually, I would love to hear like what what you thought about the choreography in the book and yeah. especially with like your expertise and which parts yeah. resonate with you or, or did you see yourself in any of the, those scenes? Oh, I definitely saw myself in a lot of it. Yeah. Just that impulse to dance, that impulse to create. I really connected with that. Um, yeah. And it's such an interesting thing to write choreography. I, I don't think I've ever really read that before. And it's interesting because you, it's, like I had said before, it's almost more of a feeling than really visually seeing it. Um, you can kind of feel the momentum of the piece. You know, she choreographs a big piece, and you can kind of feel the momentum of it um, more than actually visually seeing, oh, this person would go here and this person would go there. But I, for me, that's more what it's about. It's, you know, when you're choreographing a piece, it's about the connection and getting caught up in the flow of the piece. Um, I'm personally not very into these kind of postmodern flat modern dances mm -hmm. um so something with emotion that sweeps you away and, and that's definitely what you get um from the descriptions in the book so yeah I think you painted a very beautiful picture oh, of that cool. I'm glad to hear that yeah I think, I think that's how ever yeah. experiences the dance like she says like her her friend mm -hmm. Megan is always thinking about steps like what is the next step but forever it's about the patterns that, yeah. that their bodies are making and how that changes over what space and with what energy and what mm -hmm. tempo and that's what her body knows it's it's a quote from the book exactly. um but yeah, 
Yeah, and that's exactly what I feel too, because I'm definitely, I mean, I'm a contemporary dancer, and I've always been more drawn towards the theatrical kind of dance and less technical. Of course, with time, I've had to, you know, incorporate a lot of technique because to be a masterful dancer, you have to. Um, but my original interest in dance was always more of that emotional, expressive side. So I think that's why I definitely resonated with it. Yeah. Uh, and what, what are your aspirations for your dance? Like, what do you hope to see? Um, oh, thank you for asking me. <laughs> it's so <laughs> rare that I'm asked questions here. Um, <laughs> no, I... Um, I want to continue to choreograph. I mean, ideally, I would love to have my own company and just be able to make work freely. Um, as we were talking about creative freedom, have mm-hmm. the creative freedom to do that in all aspects. Um, so there's ideas in mind, but I'm also open to those ideas morphing and changing as I follow this right. path that I'm on. And how does being Morocco yeah. inform your work? It's informed it a lot. It's been very interesting because I'm the only... Well, I'm the only contemporary dancer that I've met so far who's really stationed in Tangier. Um, there have been quite a few passing through, and I know in other big cities like Marrakesh and Casablanca, there are there's more of a dance scene. Um, but I'm a little bit isolated here in terms of that, which has been very interesting because it's brought me a lot of opportunity. Um, so I've had a lot of opportunity to create work from a very young age. So that's been really good. Um, and definitely culturally, it's really informed a lot. I mean, just in terms of music, and then I've been learning the language here so also um, how communication kind of informs it as well and working with other people and learning how to collaborate with other people of different backgrounds and it's I think it's still happening and it's going to be all tied together into something eventually right, but, right. no I, I feel like that's yeah. something that artists <laughs> yeah they get that that somehow it, somehow it'll all work yeah. <laughs> somehow it's all informing something but you don't necessarily know what it is right now yeah you yeah. just have to trust that's it okay. I think yeah well, thank you so much for having this incredible conversation. Oh, it was so fun. It was so much fun to talk to another fellow dancer. It's yeah. great. But yeah, we'll definitely have to keep talking. Absolutely. I'd love to. I'd love to. Um, just before we finish, could you maybe tell people where they can find your work, the best yes. places to follow you? Thank you. So I have a website, um, www.abigailhingwen.com. And that's uh, that's probably where you can find like all the latest information. I'm about to start tour. So we've got events um in San Francisco, New York, Vancouver, Los Angeles, and then I'll be on tour in other parts of the country. I don't think they've been announced mm-hmm. yet. So the best place okay. to find out where is going to be on my website. Uh, and then I'm also on social media. My handle is mm-hmm. Abigail Hing Wen on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. So find me there. Perfect. Perfect. Easy. And your book is coming out on January 7th? That's right. That January 7th. So Exciting. my launch party in San Francisco um, is mm-hmm. going to be at Kepler's Bookstore on January 6th. And then I've got various okay. launch parties in other parts of the country. So I'm looking okay. forward to meeting people. And if anyone has heard yeah. this podcast, they should definitely let me know when they see me. Oh, that's so exciting. I'm so excited for you. And I wish I could be there at one of the events, but it's a little bit far. Yeah, well, I'll be in London um, in July. Yeah. So if you happen to be up in okay. that part of the world, you know, that would be fun. That's good to know. I will let you know. And if you're ever in Tangier, if you ever come back to Morocco for another trip, oh, let yeah, me know. I would love to go. I, I love the country. Thank you so much for this. It's really been incredible. Yeah, it was so much fun. You can find out more about Abigail and her work, plus find links to pre-order Love Boat Taipei through her website, abigailhingwen.com. Again, her book will be released on January 7th, so keep an eye out in the new year. For links to everything we talked about, check out the show notes at rubyjosephine.com under the podcast tab. If you have been loving Process Piece, please make sure you subscribe wherever you listen, leave a review on iTunes, or even better, share a screenshot on social media or send your favorite episode to a friend. Let's begin even more conversations about art.
Art. You can follow this podcast and continue the conversation on Instagram and Facebook at Process Peace, and subscribe to my weekly newsletter, The Sunday Pancake, where I explore daily rituals and share writing and links to things that inspire my own creative process. You can sign up at rubyjosephine.com slash subscribe. A huge thank you again to Abigail for having this conversation with me. Thank you to Cooper Lee Smith for composing the original music for this podcast. And of course, thank you so much to you for listening. I'll talk to you again in the new year.